Yokoso, welcome to Amakara Japan. You are with Yasushi, Stephen, and Michelle, and we are talking about Japanese news topics that might not hit international news lines. We welcome you listeners to are joining us again this week, and we appreciate you listening to this podcast. Say hello, Yasushi and Stephen. Hello, konnichiwa. Hi. Just wanted to let you know that they're here as well. <laughs> we do exist. Yeah. Today, we're going to mix things up a little bit. We're discussing news topics, but instead of quizzing Stephen, he hasn't been doing too hot lately. Whatever. We've been looking at some news articles and just kind of want to present some discussions with you. So today, we are going to be talking about, well, firstly, we'll be talking about the Kutu movement. Essentially, there's a movement here in Japan currently about females wearing high heels to work that many of the companies have a strict dress code at the companies requiring women to wear three to five millimeter inch shoes, centimeter, uh, centimeter excuse me, centimeter shoes. And women are kind of against it. Shoes are uncomfortable. Many women are frustrated with the status quo that they're required to wear uncomfortable shoes and are starting to fight back. So our first news topic we are discussing is how customer serving female workers, how they are trying to fight back against this dress code of wearing high heel shoes at work, especially when they're on their feet all day? Well, from my perspective, it's interesting how it's all the customer service oriented workers, which means it's the people who are always on their feet all day are forced to wear shoes that are not comfortable for their feet. So I can understand 100% why they want to to do away with this uh, unfair rule for them. And I also don't understand why they have the rule. Like why why the heels? Like what does that do to change the nest uh, change the work environment? Like what is the purpose? I guess when we know women wear high heels, they probably look more professional. It I guess it's the same reason the men wear business shoes, you know, black leather shoes. What I don't understand, you know, as a man, I sometimes do wear business shoes and it's not comfortable either, uh, especially in the hot summer days. Maybe if women have to wear shoes with you know two inch heels sometimes even more than two inch heels that might be you know that that might be pretty hard but then how hard is it shell yeah yeah let's ask <laughs> michelle how hard it is okay. to wear heels. so i i don't usually wear heels because they hurt my feet i have kind of wider feet and not a lot of heels fit a two centimeter heel isn't too bad like the pumps are what's really really difficult associated with that and it puts a lot of strain and stress on the balls of a woman's foot the thing that i struggle with is i i agree with you yasushi that a man wearing a leather shoe or a loafer you know something a nice dress shoe it looks professional but women's dress shoes can also look professional as flats i don't understand why they need to be heels mm. that you could get that why they specifically have to wear the heels is what I struggle with is I, I get the professionalism. You don't really want some flight attendant or something, you know, who has this nice business jacket and a nice, you know, pantsuit skirt going on, whatever they decide to wear. And then a pair of sneakers. I mean, it just rocks. <laughs> it doesn't fit the, um, the look that a company is going for. But I just struggle that they're like, no, you have to wear three to five centimeter heel as part of the dress code as part of the uniform. <laughs> I, guess, I guess the problem is not just, you know, having to wear the shoes with heels. They are in sales. They have to sometimes work like 10 kilometers a day, you know, and carrying heavy bag with, you know, documents and laptops. 
So mm-hmm. it's not good for their feet. You know, they might have some bunions or, you know, mm-hmm. toenails. So it's really hurting their heels and it's not it's not a healthy thing to do. And the article goes into talk about a woman who she was having like blisters and, and her feet were getting, you know, very uncomfortable. And so she went to her supervisor and she got permission to wear regular shoes. But because she was the only one wearing the regular shoes, she felt very uncomfortable and that everybody was just kind of looking at her and staring at her. And and in Japan, conforming, being like everybody else is very important. And if you do something different, it makes you feel uncomfortable. So even if you do get permission to to dress comfortably, you still have to deal with the societal like ostracizing like oh well look at this person over here wearing comfortable shoes while the rest of us are in pain like how dare they so then they might even just go back to it just because they don't want to feel out of place yeah i guess that's a very japanese thing you know even if you don't like it if you know every you look at everybody what everybody else is doing and if they're wearing you know high heels they just say nothing and follow the rules are there any rules or dress codes like for men um you know we there's the women wearing high heels but like men are there a lot of companies like okay you have to wear a necktie or yeah i think so yeah yeah i don't know if i don't know if that's you know specified in in the company rule books but in most cases in the financial industries or in the services industry you have to wear a suit and sometimes especially not in the summer season you people are expected to wear ties as well when even in the summer, like sometimes you're still required to wear your suit jacket, even if it's really hot. And so a lot of people complain about that. And then they have a a new term here in Japan called cool biz, yeah. which allows you to dress more comfortably in the summer where maybe you don't have to wear the suit jacket, but you're supposed to arrive to places sometimes wearing it, but then you can take it off. Like I've been told to go to meetings like you have to bring your jacket. You might be allowed to take it off when you get there but you better have it when you show up. So yeah, men have some rules as well. Not quite as painful yeah. as women's, but it does lead to, to discomfort and heat and such. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When this news broke out and got, you know, sort of attention, the mm-hmm. Minister of Health and Labor, he said that, you know, this is not big of a deal. I don't see any problem with this. And of course, many women were furious. Make him wear high heels. Yeah. I think I think that was actually worse about it all is there was already this movement and then the you know minister of labor throws some gasoline throws gasoline on the fire to to make it even worse i mean i think that it caused an even larger uproar because women were kind of suffering in silence but now someone verbally saying oh what's the big deal like why why are you guys making a big deal out of this i think that that just enraged them even more which caused the movement and either further increase here in Japan. Yeah. And another interesting thing is I, I did some research and in other countries like UK, Canada, they've had this discussion a few years ago. And even the Philippines, they, the president have banned companies from compelling women to wear you know, high heels. Japan is sort of lagging behind in this movement. I think, no offense to Japan, but Japan seems to be lagging behind in a lot of things <laughs> when it comes to like yeah. human comfort rights and such. Which will actually go into one of the other articles we're talking about today. That that is true. Um, yeah, we'll we'll lead into the next. So the next uh, news that we are discussing is there was a company who basically transferred a worker of theirs about three or four days after his 
paternity leave. So a uh, man's second son was born. Um, he left for paternity leave. And then when he got back to work two days later, he was ordered to relocate to another area, which is about... Oh, yeah, like 500 kilometers from Tokyo. Yeah, yeah about 500 kilometers. From, and the company is... The company's defending itself, saying, no, we had this transfer in place. Uh, it's always been there. We were going to tell him before he left for paternity leave, but he had left. And so we didn't get a chance. So when he came back, we just wanted to inform him as soon as possible. Well, the article kind of goes into how, you know, it was very surprising for this man and his family, um, you know, the birth of their second child. And now he has to go and work in a completely different area. And I think he ended up quitting didn't yeah, he? yeah did. so it's it's kind of appreciative that the company allowed for paternity leave but I, I don't know i i feel like i'm on the fence on this because yeah if a company already had this in place but the question is did they have it in place i mean a company can say they did and how are you going to back that up what do you, what do you think Yasushi, yeah so a, a lot of a lot of people think you know this this is not unusual case in japan people thought he was transferred because he took the paternity leave. Similar things happen in other companies as well. So if some workers cannot work as much as, you know, other workers due to maybe whether it be paternity leave or nursing care, you know, they get unfair treatment. And that's exactly what happened. That's what people thought. And they are they transferring these employees as kind of uh, how dare you take this paternity leave yeah, or are they trying like to penalty, do it? like a penalty, I guess. Like a pen okay, yeah. so it's like, how dare you do this so we're going to remove you from your family. Yeah, well, I don't know if... It's... Well, so I'm sure they're not like, let's take him away from his family. It's like, what's punishment? Well, let's send him far away. I mean, it's like, think about it in America, you know, it's like, hey, you're going to get transferred to Siberia. <laughs> That's where you're going now. <laughs> it's like, it's the idea of just being sent far away from where you are. Well, here's, I'm totally playing a devil's advocate now. Not that I agree with this, but what if they're sending, you know, because they know he was gone on paternity leave. They know he's going to want to stay involved with his family, but they still want a very dedicated worker. So if you kind of take him away from a little bit of that responsibility, he can focus more on, the job again i'm not saying i agree with this but i could see a company's mindset of like hey we want you to be productive and not distracted by family um obligations so if we send you to another area now you can focus on the job again but that's what this whole article is about is that a company doesn't care about the family it doesn't care about the human it only cares about the job and this person doing something and that's what it's saying is like, you need to have more of a human aspect, a humane aspect of what's happening. Looking further in the article, it's got the amount of men who take paternity leave is 6%. And the government wants to double that uh, in a couple of years to, 20, uh, to, to 13% by 2020. That's only 13%. That's their goal. That's so low. Yeah, but they and have to, that's, the, that's the goal by next year, basically, right? So... It's a high. It's not an easy target. No, I get it. It's just so sad that yeah. the number's already so low. But a company needs to survive, like, and thrive a little so bit. So what's the difference between maternity leave and paternity leave in the sense of, like, if you were to have a child, you don't want to stay at home taking care of the kid. You want to go. But if I was going to be the one to stay home taking care of it, I wouldn't be allowed to because there is no paternity leave. So how is that fair? Most men have the right to take paternity leave, but... They don't take it because they're just too busy or they they look at what other, what other men at workplaces are doing. 
Well, it goes into the whole thing about not taking vacation right. time. I mean, you're already not taking vacation, so you're not going to take paternity yeah. leave. Do you feel like the men are doing that because they don't want to or because, again, the, you have to conform to the work standards of uh, I'm providing for my family like everyone else doesn't take paternity leave so I'm reasons. not going to Both reasons. Okay. And usually, you know, Japanese workers are busy so when they're taking paternity leave like four weeks, it's it's not easy. Like I can understand if the company make this employee transfer to a dip- different department in Tokyo, within Tokyo, transferring him to a different city is another story. And you- Especially when they just had a new baby. Right, so this man has two-year-old and zero-year-old children and it's so difficult to put kids in the nursery school and they they were finally able to they got the admission to put their kids in the nurse, nursery school but then if they have to move you know you know it's a hard choice whether they should take you know their children family together and move to the kansai region or the only the husband moved to the kansai area I don't like the idea of the companies just being able to punish people for trying to be decent family people, taking care of children, taking care of their spouse, taking care of whatever. They're looking at the bottom line for the company. Like, yeah, it is. They're more concerned about the company than human aspects. And that's the issue. People think it's not right. And this Kaneka, their market capitalization has lost like more than 60 billion yen since this news broke out. So more than 20% drop. And a lot of companies have started to encourage male workers to take paternity leaves. And like Mitsubishi Chemical or Taisei Kensetsu, the leading Japanese companies have set a goal for men to take, um, for every male workers to take paternity leave. I hope that Kaneka gets some recompense or changes their rules a little bit, or I don't know if this guy will want to come back to work for him, but... It'll be interesting to see the repercussions aside from them losing all of those, you know, dollars and the market and such for that company. All right. Uh, We're going to move on to our third topic, our third news article. It is about fencing and the National Fencing Federation here in Japan that they are requiring their athletes to be fluent or in English is to start learning the English language in order to be part of Japan Fencing Federation. I I like this rule, but at the same time, as a native English speaker, I think it is completely unfair to Japanese people to be forced to learn a language that's not their own in order to be able to be better not fencers, but basically they can communicate with the referees. They can get because of communication and understanding stuff and explaining or contesting a sparring point. If you have those English language skills, you will be kind of a cut above the rest. So I, I, I go back and forth about this topic. Yeah, I think, you know, not just the fencing, but I think it would help if you know the language, right? But then again, making it mandatory is, is a different story, right? So now, so basically the Japanese Federation of Fencing has issued that you have to be, you have to pass a certain level of English exam in order to be qualified as part of a national team. So even if you are the world's best fencer, you won't, won't be you know, entitled to be the Japanese national team. The fact that they have to learn English is frustrating to me as well. As an English teacher here in Japan, I think that my job 
is a waste of taxpayer money because they're forcing these kids to learn English when they don't want to anymore at this level. Getting to the fencing side, you're telling your athletes that the that English is the end-all, be-all language, that if you want to be the best, you have to know English. There are other languages besides English. Yes, English is a common language amongst many countries, but there are still other languages. Why is it that English has to be this dominant thing? And that frustrates me so much that, that this country is all about English to the point where it's forcing its athletes to do it if they want to participate on a national team. Yeah. I mean, I understand the benefit of uh, of learning the English. And, and part of the article, it talks about this athlete named Ota. He spent some time with Peter Jopic, who was a German fencer. And in their English conversations, he picked up some hints about fencing and techniques and things like he could overhear these conversations. And because he knew was able to understand in English, it helped him to v defeat Jopic for the first time in the quarterfinals of the Beijing Olympics. So I get that, you know, when you are this excellent fencer, you know, you might be number one in the world, but having that additional leg up to be able to understand or like if somebody's like, oh, I'll start speaking English because these Japanese people won't know uh, what I'm saying or anything like that. And then you're kind of helping your own game because now you're kind of infiltrating the techniques and learning the secrets from other from other athletes or like overhearing this and like oh that's what they do so i know how to counterattack that so it's more like a to me again i don't like that it's mandatory but i do understand the benefits that can come from it gives you just that extra leg up to be a better athlete and competitor yeah but again it's the mandatory aspect of it that's the frustration it's it's Instead of saying to the athletes, like, hey, if you want to be better, you should learn English, but it's your choice. We're saying, if you want to be on our team, you have to learn English. And it just shows, again, that the aspect that I would imagine for any country, we don't care. We want to win. Right. So we're going to do whatever it takes to win. And I just see this sucking all the last little bit of fun <laughs> right out of sorts. So just for your info, the goal set by the this fencing federation is not that high. It's A2 level on safer scale. It's like the second lowest. It's like um, high school level of English. And yeah. they've already done the tests twice. And about half the athletes have passed the test and half failed, which I can understand because they have never, I guess, studied English before. Do you feel like this may or may not move forward with other Japanese sports. That's what I was national... wondering, because fencing is kind of unique. It's a minor sport. And, you know, if you think about after retiring from athlete, it's hard to find job. And if you have the English fluency, that would definitely help to get a job, whether, whether it be coaching or anything. Because in Japan, you can't make a living out of fencing. I mean, it's if you're playing if you're good at soccer or baseball you could probably become an instructor job or become a coach but fencing it's it's not easy so i guess sometimes they have to um, find jobs abroad like in southeast asian countries so then this is just they're they're preparing them for the future so I, that's kind of somewhat beneficial if you require it mandatory it, now for the fencing federation then the times where you are no longer an athlete, you still have that skill set of 
English fluency or English speaking skills to help you in the job market for whatever future job you might have. So that's actually not like I hadn't thought about the futuristic sort of uh, repercussions associated with that rule. I still don't like all the focus on English. Mm. Yeah, mm. but but they the, like I said, fencing is unique, and they have coaches from Ukraine, France, South Korea. It's it's a very international sport, and there are not many Japanese coaches out there on day to day basis. The fencers have to use English, so I guess it helps if they have the English ability. Yeah, yeah, at least to be able to stay competitive with this international type of sport. Yeah. That was Amakara Japan. Thank you for listening, listeners, um, as we discussed some very controversial news topics that have been happening here in Japan this past week. Um, But we appreciate you listening, and we hope you tune in next week for the next news headlines that are here in Japan that you might not hear about. I want to thank Yasushi and Steven for joining in in the conversation and providing very interesting commentary and feedback on these news articles so thank you very much you two all right thank you everyone and matane sayonara